All right, this is the last session in our Marriage, Family, and Singleness series. We're looking at singleness tonight. Let me, uh, let me give you a couple things right off the bat that I um, did not put in the handout. Uh, you can jot this down if you want. I, I don't even have uh, slides for it, but was thinking about it in the transition from my office to the sanctuary here. Uh, first off, <clears throat> Let me give, give uh, three or four things and then we'll pause, we'll pray, and then we'll get into the, uh, most, the heart of the content that we have for tonight. Uh, number one, I recognize that in a, for a talk like this on singleness, more often than not, the marrieds are going to outnumber the unmarrieds or those who have coupled or are coupling are going to outnumber those who are single. All right, so just for a second, I want to I address specifically, even though this will be addressed to everyone, including those who are married, I want to want to address those of you who are here who happen to be married at this present time to give you at least three brief explanations or statements as to why a discussion or a talk on singleness is worth your time and attention, okay? So a lot of times we tend to think, well, once we cross you know, that marital hurdle, hey, I'm good. I left those days behind me. I don't need to worry about it anymore. And that's just not simply the case. Here's number one. One reason why you, uh, you need to hear this, even if you don't happen to be single, is because scripture talks about it. Anything that scripture uh, draws our attention to or gives voice to is worth our study and is worth our time. So whether you happen to be single or married, we still worship, we still follow, we still read from the same book, and because scripture talks about singleness clearly and, and explicitly in some passages, it's worth our attention. Number two, not only does, uh, does scripture address the issue of singleness and therefore make it worth our while, number two, in a more practical sense, Every local church, presumably, with few exceptions, is going to have singles as part of the membership. So your church family is going to consist of people who are single for a variety of reasons. From that, we could, we could sort of branch off and say, therefore... Because we are the household of God, we'll address this later on tonight, because this is a family under the Father, the Heavenly Father, and with the same elder brother, Jesus Christ, it's incumbent upon us to know how to love our family members, regardless of their station or their status in life. And just in a broader sort of way, we could say that, um, that the second greatest command, love your neighbor as yourself, obviously is going to include anyone inside or outside of the church. And so if anyone happens to be single that we run into contact with, they, they count as our neighbor, especially if they're in a time of need or in a situation where they could use our assistance. And I'd say in general, one of the best ways to be a good neighbor or to love your neighbor well is to at least start by knowing how to think about your neighbor. Right? How, to, how to think biblically, how to think wisely, 
about what scripture says about the person that you're trying to love so that hopefully you can love them effectively. And then number three, if you happen to be here as a parent, you're married and you have children, there is always the distinct possibility that your child or children or some of your brood may be single themselves in adulthood or for their entire adult lives. You would do well, we would do well as parents then, even in the formative years as we're raising and instructing them to be able to, on the one hand, give our children a very good uh, Christ-exalting view of marriage, but then also because at least a significant part of their time into young adulthood is gonna be spent as a single to also be able to speak with them about the value that God places on him or her, regardless of whether or not they're married and what a godly life looks like in singleness, that that doesn't make them second-class citizens in the kingdom and they need to live accordingly. So those three things there, one, scripture addresses it. Two, the church has singles, and whether inside or outside of the church, we want to love our neighbors well. And then number three, as parents, we have no idea whether or not our children will end up marrying or not. Probably the odds are good that they will, but you never know. Okay, uh, one disclaimer then, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into the, the heart of our talk for tonight. For the most part, most of what I'm gonna, I'm gonna lay out here tonight more easily, if not naturally, fits with singleness uh, as it relates to people who have never been married. However, that's not to say that some of the things that we talk about here don't easily correlate with people who are single who have been married, either because of divorce or because of a spouse who's died. So when, as we go through here, just know I'm, I'm not going to pause at every point that we make and say, now this is for those never married singles, or pause and say, this is for those widowed singles, and, and try to classify that way. Um, there are a couple places where we will specifically make mention of the fact that singleness takes a, a, uh, at least three different shapes. Um, but I'm going to trust I have to. I'm gonna trust that God is big enough through his spirit to be able to give insight and understanding and awareness as to how the truth of his word, so long as it's being communicated accurately and truthfully, that his spirit is able to take what's, ne what's needed for any heart and any mind and be able to apply it appropriately and effectively. So I take that as a great burden off of my shoulders not to try to cover too much in in one limited setting, uh, but hopefully not so that it appears that I'm giving um, short attention or neglecting some very important facets of this conversation, okay? So let me open us up with a word of prayer now, and then we will go into uh, the bulk of our conversation tonight. <clears throat> Father, there are many things uh, that we discuss that, um, that we are just limited in our experience. We're limited in our knowledge and our understanding. Uh, certainly we're limited in the fact that as we speak to um, each other, 
We don't know what the future holds. Even as we talk about singleness here tonight, we know that there are a variety of different reasons why someone, whether in this room or uh, hearing this uh, recording after the fact, there can be a variety of reasons why they're single. We can't necessarily speak or address each scenario. But in your goodness and in your mercy, we ask that one, you would give us clarity of thought and mind as we uh, look into your word, um, that we would rightly um, articulate what it is that we find there, and that two, um, in your goodness and in your mercy, that you would take the truth of your word, use it to encourage, use it to convict, whatever is necessary um, for every heart and every mind so that they might uh, receive the, the food, the nourishment that their soul needs at this particular moment. At the end of the day, um, we would ask that uh, having talks like this, one, reminds us again of how um, Christ is supreme over everything. Uh, whether married or single, Christ is our greatest good. And that too, we would remember that because we have been united to Christ, we are members of one another. And so whether married or single, no one is lesser or greater uh, simply by whether or not they have partnered with another person. And so we want to be able to love each other well and treat each other with honor and respect. Thank you for your, uh, for your goodness to us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the ongoing ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in the name of your son, amen. Okay, the gist of, and I'm not sure how well you can see it on the screen. You see, I, I can see it better here than here, but you should be able to see in your notes, single is not less than married. That's the, the idea there. This is, now that I'm done with uh, formal education, this is as close as I get to math, the little greater than, less than signs. I, if, I, if at all possible, I stay away from it um, as if it were the plague. Amen. But, right. but singleness is, uh, is not less than married. So what we're gonna do, let me just give you a, a broad sort of outline of the approach that we're gonna take. We're gonna look at singleness uh, from three levels, or, or it might be better to say singleness from three perspectives. One, the societal views and pressures that come with singleness. By that we mean sort of um, what, what's entailed, coming from a Christian perspective, thinking about singleness, what might we need to consider about the society, the, the sort of the spirit of the age that we live in and how that speaks to the issue of singleness? Because oftentimes, a right biblical understanding of everything from marriage to family to singleness is going to be presented and addressed one way from a Christian perspective. The perspective of the world on the outside has a completely different perspective oftentimes, sometimes in direct antithesis to what we say. It's helpful then to address these things, if not for the simple fact that whether we like it or not, we're all creatures of our society, we're all products of our environment. And so a lot of what, uh, what the culture, what society sort of preaches to us um, sometimes happens subtly, sometimes happens even um, without any clear, in, clear intention. It's just sort of assumed. And there's certain things that it's worth 
um, paying attention to and worth bringing out into the open to say, hey, recognize that these are some things that, um, at least in terms of making our way through society, certain assumptions that have a tendency to even work their way into the church to shape the way that we think and talk about these things. Number two, we'll look uh, at more explicit statements in scripture itself. So what is the biblical witness concerning singleness? What does scripture have to say? And then number three, we wanna say something about the practical experience that comes with singleness. Okay, so in terms of the societal views and pressures that come with it, for just a general all-encompassing statement, as Christians, we would want to recognize, we would want to affirm that singleness is neither a sin nor is it a deficiency. All of us tend to agree with the first part, right? That it's not a sin to be single. We, all that. But it's that last part that although we might not say it, we sort of give that impression or we can give off that, that vibe or that attitude uh, at times in the way, that we, uh, the way that we talk about singleness or, and this is where it's particularly difficult, or in the way that we talk about marriage. There's a tendency within the church and it's, and it's understandable, it's a, it's a very easy trap, and I think you know, all of us can probably raise our hands and say we've been guilty at one time or another, especially in light of, of the, the push, the breakdown of the family in Western society. The church has rightly reacted to that and has been, um, in many cases, rightly aggressive in attempting to, um, to push that that pressure or that crumbling effect back. And by doing so, it talks up marriage and it talks up um, you know, the proper love between a man and a woman and the exalted view that it has in, uh, in scripture and in the plan of redemption and how it mirrors uh, the love relationship between Christ and his church. The, the difficulty or the challenge though is that when we talk that way, it can be very easy to come across with the idea that because marriage is this, say for example, the image of Christ in the church, that that is the greatest cosmic right, good that God has ever blessed humanity with. And I don't think that's the case. I don't think scripture bears that out. So there has to be a way that we kind of draw good balance in recognizing the gift of marriage, but then also recognizing the fact uh, that marriage is not the end-all, be-all. So number one, whenever you find yourself in a tough spot, how should I think about singleness? Start with something very simple but very profound. Jesus was single. We take it as a fundamental part of an orthodox Christian confession that Jesus Christ was although fully God, also existed as fully man. Jesus never had a sexual encounter. He never had a married relationship. He never fathered any children. And yet, 
if any Christian on those grounds were to suggest or assert that because of that, Jesus was somehow less than in his human experience, we would rightly say that they are running quickly into the realm of heresy. We, we would recognize that immediately. That being the case, if Jesus was the most full, complete, perfect human being who's ever lived, even though he remained single his entire earthly life, it must be then that marriage in and of itself is not an essential part of what it means to be human or even what it means to be fulfilled as a, as a human being or as a person, as an individual. So that's worth noting. Number two, our low view of singleness is often the result of an inordinate view of marriage. That's just sort of a fancy way of saying that sometimes the reason that we don't think better of singleness is because we think too highly of marriage. And that's where we go back again to the church oftentimes in um, an understandable desire to stand up for the sanctity of marriage and for that institution has done well, but has sometimes run into hyperbole or run just a little bit too far, speaks a little bit more boldly or emphatically about marriage in ways that scripture does not. And so if you have too high a view or an imbalanced view of marriage, more often than not, that's going to affect the way that you see or the way that you think about singleness. So just some examples. One of the ways to think about marriage is to think or to talk as if marriage is God's purpose for all men and women. Or that it's, it's just sort of assumed that marriage is the greatest good that God has for us. We've already noted that, uh, that Jesus, for example, was not married himself. You could also give a number of other uh, biblical characters as well. Paul would be another one. But you also have to, have to think about the fact that not just how creation started, where we find ourselves in creation, redemption, history, but also where all this is moving to. Especially when you think about um, our doctrine of the last things, eschatology. What will the, our final state, our final condition be like when we're in a new heaven and new earth, this new redeemed bodies, living in perfect, unbroken harmony and fellowship with Christ, right? Literally being able to see and experience him and the Godhead. And it seems fairly clear, there's a little bit of discussion on the fringes as to whether or not this is the way we're to understand it, but it seems pretty clear that Jesus um, states categorically that once we enter into the final state, there is no more marriage, If marriage then is the greatest good, 
It's very strange to consider that the greatest good that God has given humanity, his human creation, will not be a part of this perfect rest that he has coming for us. So many other parts of creation will be there, but marriage will not. And as the author of Hebrews says in uh, making his points about the imper- uh, not imperfection, the uh, inadequacy of the law, he says the law was given, but even from the earliest times, Scripture talked about the fact that the law was getting ready to be replaced. It was soon to disappear, which the author of Hebrews takes as an indication that that means the law was never perfect in terms of what was truly needed. Therefore, if marriage is something that, while good, ultimately is going to disappear, we should probably question whether or not marriage is the ultimate good that we portray it to be. Another thing that often is said or, con- or considered as far as marriage goes is that we elevate marriage as the way to deal with our need for companionship or fellowship or God's solution to loneliness. We talked about this in the very first week. I think, yes, the very first week of this series when we asked the question, uh, why marriage? What, what is the purpose of marriage? And we said that while marriage does a number of things, yes, there is a, a relational component and a companionship, fellowship component to marriage. There's no doubt about that. There is the romance. It's interesting to note that there is no explicit statement of that in the Genesis account, in Genesis 1 and 2. We read into the text when God says it's not good for man to be alone. We read into it our assumptions. Oh, well, it's not good for Adam to be, to be alone because he's going to be lonely. Maybe, maybe not. Closer to the point, though, at least in terms of the context, is the fact that Adam has just been charged with a responsibility to cultivate and to keep the garden. When he names the animals, there is no helper that is suitable for him. And so Eve is created as his partner, as his ally, to go about this job that he has in the garden. So yes, Adam and Eve will enjoy fellowship with one another. They will have friendship. But companionship is not God's answer or God's solution to loneliness. If that were the case, if marriage was the solution to loneliness, God could have easily made another man to be with Adam if all it was was he needed a friend. He didn't do that, though. He did something different, and he made a woman. He could have made a crowd of people so that Adam would have had plenty of people, multiple people to talk to and to have fun with and to share the work with. But he didn't do that. It seems then that loneliness and companionship is not necessarily the primary uh, point of marriage. And by extension then, singleness does not mean that someone is fated to live a life of loneliness. That's, That's the key point that needs to be made. Singleness is not synonymous with loneliness. Now, that may, loneliness may be a challenge. It may be something that a single person has to battle. There's no doubt about that. 
But what, we're, what we want to say is, is that simply because someone is single does not mean that they are now cursed to be lonely. That, that doesn't follow. Singleness does not necessarily mean loneliness because the only way you get valuable lifelong companionship is in marriage. And then third, marriage oftentimes, especially today, especially today, is talked about as if it is the way that we find uh, fulfillment in our self-identity. In reality, a lot of times what that means, and sometimes it's just said outright, it has everything to do with sexual identity. So, for example, let me, let me, um, let me go to an extreme, um, let me use an extreme example to, to sort of prove the point. One of the arguments that's common in, um, in the same-sex marriage debate or in the debates and discussions over homosexuality and how that should be viewed um, from uh, as far as society is concerned is that it's, it's phrased in such a way or presented in such a way that if you don't allow these people to, two men to marry or two women to marry, that you somehow are infringing upon their identity. You're keeping them from being who they really are. Right? This is who I am. Who are you to say that I can't do such and such? In other cases, even if it's not in, uh, on the issue of same-sex attraction or same-sex marriage, even when you're talking about heterosexual relationships, it's considered unnatural to tell someone that they should not express who they are sexually. You're a sexual creature. For you not to be able to act on that is to deny something of yourself or to allow others to infringe on who you are. The church sometimes picks, it doesn't necessarily pick up on that per se, but sometimes can sound a little too similar to that when they make it sound as if, or when we make it sound as if, only when I'm married do I finally get to become my full self. As if, Right, because all men and women are created as sexual beings. Well, I'm not fully living up to my potential unless I am acting out in my sexual capabilities. So marriage then, especially within the, the Christian framework, is seen as the right place, the, the, um, the sanctioned place for sexual activity to take place, and because of that, this is the one and only place where I as a Christian man or I as a Christian woman can find myself being totally authentic and totally fulfilled and totally living up to every unique aspect of my person and my being, in which case you have to go back again and you have to ask, does that mean that Jesus somehow lived a subpar humanity? that he did not live out our existence or share our condition in the fullest sense because he never had sexual intercourse with a woman, because he was never married, because he never had children. So from just a, a popular point of view, both 
out in the outside uh, cultural landscape and society in general, and then also with the pressure that that brings to bear, the way that it seeps in, even to Christian conversation and Christian ways of thinking, oftentimes we begin to um, put uh, an inordinate amount of weight and significance on marriage such that we build it up or we glorify it to the point that anything less than marriage is inadequate or is deficient, which means if you're single and you're not married, you're somehow or another, this, this is a problem that has to be solved because who doesn't want to live life to the fullest and who doesn't want to live out with all the gusto and with all the joy and abandon that they can, live out every single little piece that God has made them to be in this puzzle that they are in putting them together. So that's just sort of where society and the pressures of the culture that we're in tempts us to say probably more about marriage than what scripture even does, even though we may do it with the right motives. And as a result, we um, sort of look down on if not explicitly, implicitly, on what it means to be single. All right, here's, <clears throat> here's the biblical witness. We talked about the three different perspectives. One was, uh, was the societal pressures or the societal notions that come with it. Two, we wanted to look at the biblical witness, and so that's where we're gonna do this. The, the broad overarching statement here, singleness is a means of blessing through the new covenant. Singleness is a means of blessing through the new covenant. So first things first, number one, in order to say this, in order to say this, it means that some thought has to be given to the the unique role of marriage and family in the old covenant. Remember, one of the things that we said last week was that when you're looking at what Scripture has to say about the family in particular, that the Old Testament is much more explicit, is much more direct in its statements about the blessing of children, uh, the good of sexual love and romantic love, uh, marriage and multi-generational blessings, right? May you, may you live to see your children and your children's children. You don't have comments like that, at least not to that degree in the New Testament. And what we said last week was that when you look in the New Testament, there seems to be a certain shift where the family is assumed and affirmed, but with certain qualifications. In other words, when Jesus teaches, or when Paul writes, or Peter, or any of the other apostles, when they say things about marriage and family, they don't say it in such a way as to create the impression that it is your duty or obligation as a follower of Christ to marry, or that the sign of blessing, of God's blessing on your life as a follower of Christ will be many children, Rather, Paul just writes, for example, in Ephesians, husbands, love your wives. And if you happen to be there listening to the letter and you're married, you know he's talking to you. And then he says, children, obey your parents. If you're sitting there and you know that you have a parent 
you're still under their roof, you know he's talking to you, fathers, don't exasperate your children, so on and so forth. Still, though, what that does is it creates a certain tension between the Old Testament and New Testament. How then, or why, is it that the Old Testament seems to be so assertive when it comes to the value, the benefit, even the necessity at times of family, whereas the New Testament seems to take much more of a moderating position on that. All right, and let me give you just a, just a, couple, a couple thoughts here. Number, uh, first one, go to Genesis 3.15. This is after the fall. God is confronting Adam and Eve over their sin, and he's laying out the, the punishments, the judgments on them. And this actually falls in the part where he's addressing the serpent. And after he, he lays out the curses for the serpent in verse 14, we read this in Genesis 3:15, And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He, that is the seed, the, the woman's seed, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is, if you want to use the, the highfalutin language, people refer to this as the proto-evangelium or euangelion, proto-euangelion, the, the first gospel, okay? It's the mention of the fact that there is going to come one from the woman who is going to crush the serpent, who's going to undo all of this. It's, it's the gospel in seed form, okay? But notice here, from the perspective of Genesis 3.15, having children is a no-brainer, is essential to the serpent being crushed. Because God says, I will use humanity to bring about the solution to the problem that they created, and the solution is going to be a descendant, a human descendant, that means man and woman have to be on board with seeing to it that descendants are there from which can come this deliverer. In other words, if you're living with, under this mindset that it's only through some future human descendant or human seed that we will be set free from our burden and bondage, the curse of sin, that our enemy will be defeated wouldn't you naturally assume that you have to be having children? You can, I mean, you can't, Adam and Eve can't go through life just remaining childless, can they? So it's incumbent upon them from then on for them to be fruitful and multiply. Initially, it was so that you could exercise dominion and subdue the earth, but now there's another seemingly more important reason, and that is because through you being fruitful and multiplying, I'm going to bring the promised redeemer and deliverer. Therefore, having children is important. Family is important. That's why family, at least in one sense, is such a has such a central role in the Old Testament. Go to another place, Genesis chapter 12, verses one through three.
This is after the flood, after Babel, then uh, the peoples have scattered, and now greater confusion has been thrown in because now they don't even speak all the same language. How in the world is God going to bring blessing back to his creation when creation just continues to unravel and find greater disharmony than harmony? The answer to that comes in Genesis 12. He calls Abraham and says, Abraham, it's through you and your descendants that I'm going to perform my rescue operation. And in part then, after telling him in 12.1 to leave your father's home and go to the land that I will show you, he says in verse two, and I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you will be a blessing. And then when you flip over a couple pages or a page over to chapter 15, Abraham is very flustered, very despondent almost over the fact that he has no descendants. He says, I'm gonna have to pass everything that I have off to my servant. God comes, 15.4, behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them so shall your descendants be. And so within the the Old Testament paradigm then, the reason that family takes on uh, a unique significance in the life of Israel, in, in the life of the Old Testament people of God is because it was through the family of Israel that God was bringing about redemption. But if you get to a point where the Redeemer has come, and if you get to the point where redemption or being part of the people of God is no longer determined by family ties, by your ancestry, by your genealogy, right? Then family is not as crucial anymore to the kingdom and to the program of God's redemption. So much so that Jesus tells Nicodemus in John chapter three that you have to be born again if you're gonna enter into the kingdom. It no longer is determined by physical birth. Anyone can be made part of the kingdom of God no matter who they're parenting, no matter who their heritage flows from. And in that sense then, the weight and the burden that is carried by family units and the larger family of Israel, a people group, now takes on sort of a back seat to the work that God is going to do uniquely through his spirit for all peoples and all nations. So that's a long way to simply say this. The reason that the Old Testament is so direct and is so assertive in the the good of marriage and family is because until the coming of Christ, until his work, it was primarily through the families of God's people, the marriages and their children, that God was working to bring about his promised redeemer. Once that's taken place, marriages and children and families, they do not carry the same weight or the same burden or the same significance anymore. That's not to say that they're not important. 
It's just to say that they no longer have that same role or capacity anymore. Does that make sense? Okay, and I think that is one of the ways to understand some, a couple of the other places that we'll look at uh, in the scripture, particularly what Jesus and Paul have to say about the issue of uh, being married versus remaining single. And lo and behold, here's where we're gonna look at that. Number two, singleness is encouraged in the New Testament. This stands in sharp contrast to the Old Testament. The Old Testament does not encourage singleness for the reasons that we just said. It was the duty of every Israelite to grow up, to marry, to have children, and to continue to expand God's people, the number of God's people. In the New Testament, not so. Go to Matthew chapter 19. This is Jesus himself And we're going to have to start to pick up the pace on this. Which is unfortunate because this is one of those passages that you don't want to, you don't want to run through. Matthew 19. Pick up at verse 10. This is after Jesus has been asked the question about divorce and remarriage, right? Can a man divorce his wife for any reason? Jesus gives the answer. And then after the disciples have heard what Jesus has said, they say, Matthew 19, 10, the disciples said to him, if the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it's better not to marry. In other words, if there's that much pressure that if you separate from your wife without any clear sanction, you're guilty of adultery and you make her guilty of adultery, why run the risk? You're far better off just being single and staying clear of all that stuff. And Jesus does not correct them. He does not say, oh, come on, guys, you're overreacting. No. Jesus said in verse 11, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who were born that, were, uh, who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Now, because we're, we're all adults, I'm going to assume that we all know what a eunuch is, and I don't have to draw any diagrams or anything like that, okay? All right. Notice, though, three, three kinds of eunuchs, figuratively speaking, the one is essentially a eunuch from birth. That means that as a result of either some sort of deformity or some sort of physical uh, limitation or impotence or sterility, that person is, for all intents and purposes, the same as a eunuch. Can't father, can't, can't father any children. Second is a eunuch who is made so by other men. That would seem to indicate you know, some sort of uh, physical action that's taken place after the fact, and you would assume, hope even, that that would be somewhat voluntary on the person who's being made a eunuch. Third one is someone who becomes a eunuch effectively by choice for the sake of the kingdom. Now, here's, here's the thing to notice here. 
The fact that Jesus talks about in response to the disciples, it would be better for a man not to marry them. The fact that Jesus uses the eunuch language is very important and significant because he could have just said, well, there are many people who remain single or there are plenty of people who remain unmarried, but he doesn't. When he uses the eunuch language, one of the things that it it appears that he's doing is that he's going back to a concept that the Israelites would have found unthinkable. Like no one would want to be in that because someone who was a eunuch was, had to be shut out or put outside of the assembly. They did not get to participate in all of the full rights and privileges that went with being part of the Israelite community because God is holy and God is perfect. And if you have any kind of significant deformity on the physical body and for a man castration or some such thing, you lose certain rights and privileges even though you're an Israelite. Or if you happen to be a eunuch through another culture or another uh, ethnic group, but you become a proselyte and you want to identify as an Israelite, you can't say, oh gosh, if I had only known, sorry, eunuchs can come this far, but they can come come no further. Jesus then seems to use this as a way to communicate the idea that as a result of the kingdom and the significance that it takes on, the old categories of what was most important or what was most prized are being turned upside down. No one, no self-respecting Israelite would ever think to either literally physically make himself a eunuch or to consider himself one. Remember, it's part of his, his job, his responsibility as an upstanding Israelite man to marry and to have children. Jesus says that there's coming a time when people will choose to be a eunuch for the sake of the kingdom. And he apparently says that affirming that choice as if that's a good thing. This is something totally new, or at least in their minds. By the way, we we put this in your notes and we don't have time to turn there now. This was hinted at, this is one of the beauties of scripture. This was hinted at in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 56, three through five. You've got that in uh, in the references from the previous point. And then just very quickly, let me point you to a couple statements that Paul makes in 1 Corinthians 7. First Corinthians 7, verses 8 and 9. Paul says, but I say to the unmarried and to, uh, and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, that is, unmarried. But if they don't have self-control, let them marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion, with sexual desire. Previously, if you go up one more verse, if you go up to verse 7, 
Paul says, I wish that all men were even as I myself am. However, each man has his own gift from God, one in this manner and another in that. It's interesting that at least in one sense, Paul considers singleness a gift. Again, that is not an Old Testament concept. Singleness is not a gift. It is for Paul. And by the way, let me, let me say right here, I don't think that what Paul is saying is, is that if you find yourself single, you must think of it or assume that it is a gift that God has given you. Some people are gifted with singleness. Some people are not gifted with singleness, but it's assigned to them anyway. Which is what Paul, I think, what Paul has to say later on in the chapter and let me just sum up so that we don't have to read where he basically says, listen, were you, called at, were you called, did you come to Christ being married? Stay married. Were you called, did you become a Christian? Did Christ call you when you were single? Stay single. But if you marry, that's fine. You're not sinning. You, you can do that. But I'm trying to save you from trouble. Because anyone who gets married in this life is going to experience trouble and your commitment is going to be divided, your devotion to the Lord, you're going to have concerns about how to please your spouse, whereas I and everyone else who's like me only has to worry about pleasing the Lord. And so I think what Paul does there is basically he makes room for the fact that there are some people like himself who seem to be given a special gifting for the single life. But then there are other people whom it doesn't necessarily depend on whether or not they've been spiritually gifted for that. It may just be a matter of discernment or even of choice. They can choose to be single or they can choose to be married. Sometimes the choice may or may not be forced upon them. They, they may more or less be obligated to choose singleness. Maybe not, but that's, that's the point. In, in all of this then, there is a freedom here. There's a wideness in the perspective of generosity when it comes to singleness that you can't find in the Old Testament. And it's all because of the fact that now that the Redeemer has come now that the kingdom of God does not depend on physical birth, but on new birth, it is not incumbent upon me anymore to expand or advance the kingdom by populating the earth with little mini Christians. One, I can't guarantee that I'm gonna do that, but two, that's not how Christians are made. Christians are made by a work of the spirit on the heart and mind, not through a physical birth. Therefore, both Jesus and Paul can say, listen, the way things are now, in some respects, it's better if you're not married and it's better if you don't have kids. You can serve the Lord better and you can be rewarded just as much. Let's keep moving. The single life has complexities of its own. This is sort of the practical experience that comes with it. Number one, no matter how you think of singleness, even if, you're, even if we're thinking of it more clearly and more accurately from a biblical perspective, we still need to pause and consider that not all singleness is identical. So there are some people who are single 
just simply because they've never been married, an unmarried singleness. There are some people who are single because they've been divorced. There are some people who are single because their spouse has died. I don't know that because of that then, I'm necessarily going to take what Jesus says in Matthew 19 about sort of a self-imposed celibacy, you know, act as if you're, you know, I don't know if I'm necessarily going to take that to a man who's just lost his wife. That, that may or may not be, or not just lost his wife. Hopefully I wouldn't take it to anyone being that rash, but you get the point. Someone who has lost a spouse, you need to use discernment in how you apply the biblical rationale for singleness because it's not a one-size-fits-all uh, issue. Number two, and this we already alluded to, so I'm not going to spend much time on it. Unmarried singleness is a gift for some, an assignment for others. Unmarried singleness is a gift for some, an assignment for others. In terms of the latter, um, think of, uh, and, and we, could give, we could give some names, um, but if you think of people through church history, especially those who, have, um, who the nature of their witness or say missionary activity um, caused them or put them in places where they had to take great risks, some of them wrote and, and very clearly said, I, I chose not to get married because I knew this was the life that God had in store for me and I knew that it would not be right to drag along a wife or to drag along a family into situations where I would have to pick up and leave in a, in a moment's notice or when my life could be under threat. I, just, I knew that that was not going to happen for me. So it wasn't necessarily that they had no desire for marriage or they couldn't see themselves as being married, but just simply they knew that God had a higher calling placed on them that trumped whatever desire they may have had for marriage and for family. So in that sense then, it may not have been that they said, oh yes, I'm gifted for the single life. It may just be the fact that they say, well, this is what God has called me to. He's assigned me this task and this role and I've taken it on as way of submitting to him and his lordship in my life. Number three, whatever the reason for singleness, challenges will inevitably come. By this, we simply mean that whether you are gifted for singleness or not, whether you choose singleness or not, the reality is such that everyone in their given station in life is going to find certain pressures and challenges and, ta and tests and pitfalls that are unique to their situation. In the same way that someone who is married in some ways has blessings in one area but challenges in the other, it happens the same way for the single life as well. In some respects, living single can be a blessing. In other ways, it can be a great test and a great challenge. In each and every case, though, what needs to be remembered is whether God has placed you here by plan, conscious plan on your part, or by surprise, whatever it is that his hand has given you, we take on faith that he also gives the grace in order to live out the particular station that we find ourselves in. 
So to wrap it up, three things going forward. In light of the fact that a Christian perspective on singleness has a way or should have a way of honoring the single life and recognizing its value and its benefit, one of the things that we can do is remember, and I'm I'm speaking primarily to those of us who are married right now, is remember that the church is the household of God, which which is family language. The church exists as a family. Therefore, if there are single people in the family who do not physically have a spouse or children, they should be able to find, in some respects, a family connection within their local church body. Let me go ahead, because these are closely related. Let me go ahead and put number two up there. Don't segregate or discriminate. Because then, this is the household of God and we function as a family together in many respects, it's like when you sit down at the dinner table with your own family. When it's time for the family to sit down and eat, you don't say, okay, now we're gonna take all those five and under and we're gonna sit them down at the table and we're gonna have a meal. And then once they're done, then all those who are five to 10, we're gonna have you eat. Or, or yeah, we're gonna let you all eat at the same time, but under, under, five and under eat in this room, five and up eat in the other room, and then the adults are gonna leave town, <laughs> I don't know, uh, leave the house and let you fend for yourselves. You, you don't do that. As a family, ideally, you're doing things together as a family, which means your teenager is sitting at the same table as the adults, the parents, and the teenager is sitting at the same table with the parents and with the five-year-old and with the six-year-old, even though the 16-year-old has little to nothing in common on the surface with the six-year-old sibling, they're still together at the table and they're still sharing the meal and they're still sharing life together. It's no different in the church. There is something to be said for being able to enjoy peer relationships in terms of young couples or couples with children or so on and so forth. But if that becomes the primary way that we sort of break down into small groups or something like that, and we never consider the fact that we're cutting out valuable members of the body or even that we're diminishing our own opportunities to be challenged and to grow in fellowship with one another, that's a, that's a serious misstep on the part of the church. So if, if you're a couple or if you're a couple and you have a family, by all means, instead of thinking that every time you have someone over to eat, well, you know, can we have a family over? Maybe you find a widow or a widower. Maybe you find a divorcee in the church. Maybe you find a young adult single and you invite them over not to try to fix them up, not to sit them down at the table and say, now, how long have you been praying for a mate? (laughs) Right? But just simply to have them over and to eat, and to laugh, and to talk, and to be able to share life together. And then I would say, on the flip side of that, if you happen to be on the single side of the spectrum, 
by all means, look for opportunities to become sort of these spiritual fathers and mothers for other children in the church or spiritual grandparents even. It's very interesting when Paul is talking with Timothy and Titus and he, he talks about the way that they, Timothy in particular, as a young man should address older people in the church. He says, you address the older men like fathers and the older women like mothers. As if to say, the way to think about how you should relate to them is they're going to be spiritual fathers and mothers and that's how you communicate to them. With the same kind of honor, respect, deference that you would give to your biological father and mothers. And I think that's an an indication that there are ways for these non-blood relations to be able to communicate well with each other and to be able to enjoy themselves together in a God-honoring, Christ-exalting way. Last one. Ah, we already did this. Look for opportunities to involve singles in your family and vice versa. Singles look for opportunities to involve families. All right, so just just as uh, by way of closing, I would encourage you, as you think about this, one do make an attempt, however or whenever the Lord brings it to mind, to try to step back and say, rather than assuming this is the way that marriage is to be thought of, this is the way singleness is to be thought of, consciously putting yourself through the paces of saying, what does Scripture say about these things? And recognizing if you're saying more about marriage than what Scripture does, You need to take a step back. If you're saying less about singleness than what Scripture does, you need to step up. If your experience or or the extent of your connections within the body are only with those who are in peer settings or like life situations, you need to branch out a little bit more. Not just for those who who are married, or in families, but even for those who are single. Take advantage of the opportunity you have in your various stages of life and with your various responsibilities to be able to share that with people that you share this spiritual life with, since we're all family anyway, okay? Let me close this with a word of prayer, and we are done. Appreciate you being here. Father, again, we ask you to do what we cannot do for ourselves, that you would give to us a spirit of humility and grace Um, where we do not think more highly of ourselves than what we ought. We do not think more highly of marriage than we ought or think uh, less of those who are single than what we ought, but that with um, equality and fairness and um, this right standing that we all share with you because of Christ, that we would come to enjoy and value and profit from the relationships um, that we as married couples can have with singles in the church and singles with married couples. Uh, May the body here at Edgewood grow and thrive in um, not just our willingness, but our ability um, to be able to develop and enhance these relationships. May it be done in such a way that, uh, that you're glorified and Christ is exalted and your spirit is seen as the driving power in our midst. We thank you again for Jesus and his work. And it's all in his name that we pray. Amen.